Last week, we talked of the theory that Churchill missed the bus when he failed to reply with gusto and enthusiasm to FDR's offer in 1941 that the US and UK worked together on developing an atomic bomb. He was advised to hang back a little bit, be a bit cool, a bit reserved, because Britain is surely far, far ahead in its atomic research. So Churchill sent his cool message to FDR and then went to his country home, Checkers, for the weekend. And whilst he was there, the news broke of something that would change the atomic race and the course of the war. We interrupt this broadcast and bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. The next day, of course, the USA declares war in Japan. A date which will live in infamy. And Churchill later wrote, No American will think it wrong of me if I proclaim that to have the United States at our side was to me the greatest joy. But let's forget joy. What about cold, hard reality? A group from Tube Alloys, that's the code name of Britain's atomic bomb project, went to America early in 1942 to meet their American counterparts and what they saw (laughs) gave them quite a shock. What they saw was money. Money, money, money. Yes, the US, of course, had great scientists and resources and plant, yes, but money was what set them apart from us. Britain, of course, was in the midst of war and had been stretched and ravaged and ground down for years by it, but even without the insatiable demands of total war, how could we have hoped to match the money of booming America? This was no longer Britain's century. Ours had been the 19th, but the 20th belonged to the United States. Turning again to Kevin Rain's book, Churchill and the Bomb, we find that the mad amounts of money sloshing around the American atomic project had been communicated to Anderson. Remember we met Anderson last week? He of the Anderson Shelter, who then went on to be the organisation man in charge of tube alloys. He wrote uh, urgently to Churchill, speaking of America's, quote, lavish expenditure, which we cannot rival. He urged that we start forming an atomic partnership with them, which is a big turnaround given that he and his scientific colleague, Lindemann, they were the guys who, last week, urged Churchill to be aloof and restrained when FDR made an offer of partnership. They were the ones who caused Churchill to arguably miss the bus. But now they had changed their minds. Now America was in the war and going full tilt for an atomic bomb. And so Anderson thought, well, we need to get in there. We need to get into partnership with them and to do it fast. Why the hurry? Well, Anderson realised they, the British 
had something to sell. <laughs> they had something of value. That is their atomic knowledge, their expertise. And the fact that they started their bomb project before the Americans. But if we wasted any more time, the Americans, uh, they would soon overtake us and <laughs> go streaking ahead. And our bundle of atomic knowledge would swiftly lose its value. Basically, we had to get in there whilst our product was still appealing to the buyer. Anderson wrote to Churchill that's, quote, the pioneer work done in this country is a dwindling asset, and that unless we capitalise on it quickly, we shall be rapidly outstripped. Another thing Anderson had come to realise was that atomic partnership wouldn't exactly do us any harm in the post-war era either. If America seemed likely to be the first to get the bomb, then surely in the uncertain world which is going to come, it would be best to be standing alongside them. Preferably with a bomb of our own, or at least the sure knowledge of how to make one. But uh, if FDR had made a generous offer of partnership previously, now the... US response was cool. This time around, they were in no hurry to team up with tube alloys. As we discussed last week, arguably we missed the bus. So why were America no longer keen to go into partnership with tube alloys? Well, Kevin Raines suggests that, like Anderson, they too were looking to the post-war period. Insane amounts of money were being pumped into the Manhattan Project, America's quest to build the bomb, and there were few questions being asked. Whatever they wanted, whatever they needed, give them it. Money was no object. Whatever the Manhattan Project asks for, give them it. Throw money at them. Now, those in charge were perhaps wary of inviting what was a foreign power into such a project. Yes, we were allies, of course, but we were still a foreign power. So one day, when the war is over, when the dust has settled, and when the reviews are being made and the accounts <laughs> looked into, no one wanted to be dragged before some committee in Washington and labelled as the guy who let some damn foreign government into all these secrets. These fearsomely expensive secrets paid for by the US taxpayer, and so crucial to national security. The guy who let those Brits just walk right in. Particularly when one of those Brits, uh, James Akers, was high up in ICI, in private business, and would surely go right back to his industry after the war, and perhaps use America's nuclear knowledge to propel ICI into direct competition with American interests. As well as having one eye on the post-war scene, there were also two influential individuals in the Manhattan Project who were trying to freeze Britain out. The first was General Leslie Groves. He was a big, bombastic, bossy bloke from the Army Engineering Corps who had been working on building the Pentagon. And he was now brought in to direct the Manhattan Project. Gerald de Groot's book, The Bomb, tells us that Groves did not get along particularly well with scientists. 
he perhaps felt uh, strangely insecure, given that they all had a thousand degrees each and he had none. And of course, and who can blame him, he did not fully understand the science. I'll read you some quotes here from uh, Gerald de Groot's book. Friction inevitably developed between Groves and the scientists. Huge egos were easily bruised. Groves deeply resented the intellectual snobbery of the scientists, while they resented being managed by a boorish layman who did not completely understand the processes being developed. At one of his first meetings, Grove reacted like a cornered beast. Quote, There is one last thing I want to emphasise. You may know that I don't have a PhD, but let me tell you that I have ten years of formal education after I entered college. Ten years in which I just studied. I didn't have to make a living or give time for teaching. I just studied. That would be about equivalent to two PhDs, wouldn't it? The book goes on. At his first meeting with his immediate staff, all military personnel, Groves warned, uh, not entirely in jest, your job won't be easy. At great expense, we have gathered together the largest collection of crackpots ever seen. Contempt flowed in two directions. The pragmatism and order of the military was abhorrent to the scientists, while their aimless theorising seemed dangerously self-indulgent to Groves. Edward Teller says that he was deeply unpopular. Admired, yes, widely admired, but not widely liked. I hated his guts and so did everybody else, said Colonel Kenneth Nichols. Nichols' quote goes on, He's the biggest son of a bitch I've ever met in my life, but also one of the most capable individuals. He had an ego second to none. He had tireless energy. He had absolute confidence in his decisions. And he was absolutely ruthless and how he approached a problem to get it done. Sounds like a very formidable man then, of course. And isn't it just our luck that he was opposed to British cooperation in the Manhattan Project? He was quite obsessed with the project's security. Although that didn't stop the project being infiltrated, of course, by spies. But we'll come to that in another episode. It was his uh, desire for tight, tight security which led him to try to freeze out Britain. And uh, after the war in the 1950s, he openly admitted that, yes, he did everything he could to keep Britain out. The other powerful person working to deter British involvement was James Conant. He was a professor of chemistry who became president of Harvard. And in 1941, he also joined the Manhattan Project. That same year, he visited Britain, sailing on the steamship Excalibur, to assess the state of our atomic research and see if we could work together. He met the Prime Minister, and he had lunch with King George. And he had, only the year before, expressed great admiration for the British. Quote, a stout-hearted population under bombardment, who, he said made him proud to be a member of the human race. But despite that, uh, (laughs) he was a very hard-nosed negotiator and, back in America, was urging that they keep distance from Britain when it came to sharing atomic secrets. 
he too was wary of what might happen after the war. Would Britain become a post-war economic rival and use American atomic ingenuity to compete with them in industry and energy? Neither was he keen on America restricting itself in any way by entering deals and agreements. And so, Corrant struck. He issued a set of rules which would govern any atomic relationship between the US and UK. And these rules said that America would only share atomic information with Britain if it was necessary for wartime use. That is, not a single drop, not a single hint of anything else ever. Nothing unless it was strictly and absolutely necessary for wartime purposes. So that would keep us neatly in a little box with only this and nothing more. Partnership? (laughs) Forget it. The Tube Alloys team back in Britain were told of these Conant rules in January 1943. And they were, of course, horrified. Anderson, in particular, was shocked. And he wrote directly to Churchill, asking him to please go to FDR and sort this out. He said it was quite intolerable. Churchill was soon to depart for a conference with FDR in Casablanca and was confident that he could indeed sort it out. But when he was in Casablanca, he didn't raise the subject directly with the president. Instead, he spoke to Harry Hopkins, FDR's close advisor, whom Churchill had a high opinion of. Harry Hopkins told Churchill, don't worry, it will all be sorted out. But Anderson, back in Britain, wasn't convinced it was going to be that easy. He said that the Americans, quote, wish to gain an advance on us and feel that, having benefited from the fruits of our early endeavours, they will not suffer unduly by casting us aside. But Churchill left Casablanca with the good word of Harry Hopkins and wasn't worried. Harry would sort it. They just had to wait. Just sit and wait to hear from Harry. Of course, when we say that Churchill waited to hear from Harry, Churchill was still conducting the war. That was still all going on in the background. Um, The Chubalos project was one thing amongst a million others that he had to deal with. But nonetheless, Chubalos and Churchill waited to hear from Harry Hopkins. And they waited. And waited. Silence from America. Silence uh, and occasional little messages containing evasions and obstructions. Anderson, who I imagine must have been tearing his hair out, said of FDR, it cannot be his intention that we should be treated in this way. But it seems that it was. Churchill was forced to start chasing Harry Hopkins for a response, with one of his letters stating, I am much concerned about not hearing from you. America had gone cold on us. A foreshadowing, perhaps, of Henry Kissinger's famous quote that America has no permanent friends or enemies, only interests. On the same day Churchill wrote that letter to Hopkins, he told Anderson and Lindemann to look again at whether Britain could build an atomic bomb alone. Just like that guy I knew when I was 29... America didn't want to be tied down to any partnership and it just wouldn't answer any texts. 
So in what Churchill called a sombre decision, Britain had to look at going it alone. And so they eventually stopped sharing scientific data with the Americans and all scientific exchange visits and projects were cancelled. So the restrictive rules drawn up by James Conant, which sought to severely limit the sharing of information, had led to zero information being shared. They had cut everything off. It all stopped. Britain would have to go it alone. Anderson described it as a shipwreck. I hope you're enjoying this uh, story of Britain's atomic bomb project and we will continue it next week. A reminder that I added a bonus podcast during the week for patrons and it's there on the Patreon page ready to be downloaded. So that's the fifth bonus podcast I've done uh, since the new year and I will continue to add bonus podcasts there for patrons. So if you want to get access to those, please consider signing up as a patron, which you can do by going to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And I've got two new patrons to welcome this week, Sarah Roth and Robert Pinfold. And let me also give a shout out and thanks to some of my oldest patrons who've been with me since 2018. Gordy McNair, Paul Jonathan Viner, Damien Ryan, Brian Outlaw and Steve Sace. Remember, you can find me on Facebook under Nuclear Britain, on Twitter as Julie A. McDowell, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. And thank you for listening.